Our second case is 2023-0004, preterm Cleveland Planned Parenthood, Southwest Ohio Planned Parenthood of Greater Ohio, Women's Med Group Professional Court, Northeast Ohio Women's Center, doing business as the Toledo Women's Center and Sharon Liner versus Dave Yost, Attorney General of Ohio. On behalf of the appellants, Mr. Flowers, good morning. <clears throat> good morning, Chief Justice Kennedy. May it please the court, I'll try to reserve a couple of minutes for rebuttal. If the first district's decision is right, then trial court judges are among the most powerful officials in all of state government. And that's because of the Counsel, first- Counsel, why, why not just bring a writ of procedendo? I'm sorry? Why not bring a writ of procedendo in this court or in the first district? Well, writ of procedendo requires an extraordinary showing, and even and, and the court did move quickly here, so our issue isn't with that. The, the, you're talking about in the trial court or the court of appeals? Both. You can file the writ of procedendo in the court of appeals or here. I'm saying from the trial court's decision or from yes. the— And what that would care. mean is that in every case where a state law is enjoined, we would be filing an extraordinary writ in this court, which I don't think this court would want, and which I think we would have trouble showing unless you frankly alter the standards for what a writ of procedendo requires. So let me explain why the well, first— How long ago was the trial court decision? The trial court decision here was in 2022. And what, where are we now? Almost the end of 23. And we've made the determination, the strategic determination, that the best way to most quickly address the irreparable harms, which I'll get into, is by coming to this court, especially because we're worried about the systemic effect and not simply the effect in this case. The problem with the first district's ruling is that if it's right, then every tri all 88 common pleas courts can unilaterally indefinitely suspend operation of state law for as long as it takes to conduct discovery, to hold the trial, and to issue an injunction. There's no grounds for a writ of procedendo if they're going through steps that they're legally required to take, which they are uh, when they do that. So we're not talking about a court necessarily holding a law hostage. Couldn't the legislature change that on, under 2505? It could, but it has no reason to, so let me explain why. If you look at uh, B4, subsection B4, um, any, any party, whether it's the state or anyone else, can challenge uh, can immediately appeal an order granting or denying a preliminary injunction if there's no meaningful or effective remedy later. So if a party can show irreparable harm from an injunction, they can immediately appeal. Ohio says, Counsel, the harm that you're alleging is the daily um, blocking of the people's will to have this law. So going back to Justice Fisher's uh, question, wouldn't the procedendo have been um, the more effective way of dealing with this? Uh, no, because a writ of procedendo would not, there would no, be, be no valid basis for a writ of procedendo if a court is scheduling uh, hearings and discovery that's required to hold by law, right? There's no, like, there's nothing wrong with issuing a preliminary injunction than moving forward on the case. We would have to show inordinate delay to get that. And the problem and the reason why we can immediately appeal here is that the state has sustained irreparable harm. So let me, there's a general irreparable harm and a case-specific one, <clears throat> and I'll get to those. Well, excuse me, but... The, the trial court found by clear and convincing evidence that there was a likelihood of success on the merits. So in terms of the balancing of interest, which it has to do in meeting the four prongs of that test to issue a preliminary injunction, um, I, I, I'm not sure why the state is so prejudiced, because if the state is ultimately interested in being fair to the people, wouldn't it want the court to take its time to ensure that a law that it could be and seem to be likely to be unconstitutional uh, wouldn't be imposed upon the people unnecessarily? 
So obviously we believed it's not unconstitutional and our interest is in vindicating that. We have an interest in vindicating the law. And so all we're seeking here is to get into court. This isn't about whether we win. It's about whether we have a right to show up. But, but it, it, in this situation, you're just talking about a delayed remedy. There's, there's nothing that is, is I mean, both sides could argue that if, if we don't have relief now, there are things that we can never recover. Both sides can argue that. So in this situation, he, he, the trial court just essentially is giving the parties more time to do more robust discovery and make more robust arguments but and, and then to reach a decision. So both parties can make the point, and that's a, that's a critically important point. We're not seeking a one-sided rule here. It's already the law that the, that the refusal to grant a preliminary injunction, if it results in the denial of constitutional rights, can be an immediate appeal because there's no meaningful or effective remedy later. This is just a two-sided street. So when I, if I can get through the, the state's kind of general and case-specific irreparable harm here, as a general matter, yes, the state sustains irreparable harm, no way to remedy it later for every day that its law is enjoined. But even if the court does not agree with that general proposition, there's a more case-specific one that applies to this case, and it stems from the irreparable, irreversible nature of abortions. Let me start by going to a less controversial topic, trade secrets. Everyone agrees, even the first district I think would agree, that if a denial or a grant of a preliminary injunction permits the release of confidential information like a trade secret, that can be immediately appealed. The reason it can be immediately appealed is there's no way to unring that bell later. Once the information's out, it can't be clawed back. The harm can maybe be reduced, but it can't be eliminated. Now, when you deal with an irreversible, irreversible medical procedure, you're in the same boat which is why this court in Muncie said you could immediately appeal an order uh, allowing or, or requiring forced medication. So when you get to the abortion context, every abortion that occurs that would otherwise be prohibited interferes irreparably with the state's interest in stopping that procedure from having happened. The court is not here tasked with, with asking, as, as you suggested, whether the state can or should advance that interest. It's just whether the, court, the state can get into court to make the argument. All of that's irreversible. Understand, All isn't it irreversible from the standpoint of those who are seeking the injunction as well? Right, and that's why they would have had an immediate appeal if the injunction were denied, and we wouldn't have contested that. So all we're asking for is the same rules to apply to both sides. We're not seeking special treatment. All that we would get is to get into I, court. I don't think it's a given that they'd have an immediate appeal. We stipulate that they would. If you argue your constitutional rights are being denied, you've shown irreparable harm, there's no meaningful or effective remedy later, and you can but immediately appeal. Just because appeal. you stipulate that doesn't mean that's the law. That's a fair point. I think we're right about what the law is. It's been Hornbook law for decades that the denial of a constitutional right, even for short periods of time, is irreparable injury. Um, and, and we wouldn't object to that. So all that shows that we get into court. Again, it does not show that we went on the merits, and not even here to talk about the merits because the court did not uh, grant review. So let me. The rule that you want us to write is that any time there is a preliminary injunction in joining a state law, the state can immediately appeal. Is that, is that right? That's that, or in the alternative, we have the narrower case-specific rule, which is at least when the state, the law forbids irreversible medical procedures, an injunction in joining that law can be immediately appealed because there's no way to undo the procedures later. So there's a general basis and a case-specific basis. I mean, so if you had... I mean, imagine, say, a tax statute. There, were, there was an injunction um, forbidding the state from collecting the new whatever tax it, it is imposed uh, on on limited liability corporations. You know, why why would why would that be 
uh, immediately appealable. I mean, the state can always, if, if, the, if the injunction's overturned, it can go back and collect back taxes. There doesn't seem to be any harm. Uh, I, if there could, I suppose if there could be a showing that they could collect the back taxes, I'm not sure that would work, though, if it's enjoined for tax season, people pay their taxes, it's reversed. I'm not sure the government would be able to go back and retroactively claw it back, for the same reason that you can't punish someone who complies with an injunction while the injunction's in place if it's later overturned. So whatever happens in that period, as long as the parties were complying with the injunction. What would, instance would there be, then, that uh, the state would not be irreparably harmed by an injunction prohibiting its law from going into effect? So two, two answers to that. Our, our primary answer, and this is how things work in the federal system when you're seeking the stay or anything else, uh, is that every time a state law is enjoined, that's per se irreparable harm. As a fallback, though, we say if you don't want to issue a ruling that broad here, the case-specific harm that I highlighted would alternatively allow us to immediately appeal. But if, you, if we... You analyze federal law, but federal law, it's, it, these sort of injunctions are immediately appealable. Right, but that's not what we're citing for this. What, in the federal system, and they say all these cases are appeals as of right, that's not true. There are also stay applications that are not as of right. In that context, the, there's an irreparable harm prong to the fact, to the, to the test, and the court says the, the injunction of a state law is per se irreparable harm. There's no reason that analysis should come out differently here. So as long as those courts are right, and we think they are, the court should adopt the same rule. If we agree with you that it is a final appealable order, yes. okay, do we not have to set, set the case back on the standing issue to the first district for them to make a decision first? No, the court could do that, but it does not have to do that. Nothing st stops the court from uh, reversing the judgment on any grounds it sees fit. So if it determines there was jurisdiction, it can then reach the second proposition on which it granted review and now has before it. So I can turn to the third party standing. It, why, why wouldn't we have the appellate court do that first? Uh, I think because this case has gone on long enough, we came here to try to get to vindicate our interest and prolong it even further by sending it back there, uh, we think would be unlikely to vindicate those interests quickly. So whatever the answer is here, I think all sides have an interest in having it done as quickly as possible. So let me, let me explain why we prevail on third-party standing. And it's really a lack of evidence on the other side. The plaintiffs have the burden to prove third-party standing, and they've not carried their burden as to the second or third prongs, and I'll take those in reverse order. So if we start with the hindrance prong, which requires a showing that a woman as a class, because keep in mind, they're not suing on behalf of a particular woman. They're suing on behalf of all, the entire category of women who may ever seek abortions from them. They'd have to show that that entire category is uh, unable to press its own rights. And the problem they have is the same problem that the plaintiffs had in the Kentucky Supreme Court case, which is that they can't explain why women would be unable to press their, press their rights, their own rights, in suits they file under a they're pseudonym. They're also suing on behalf of their current patients as well, correct? Uh, no, well, they don't name particular plaintiffs. The point I'm making is it's a... It's, it's well, a, they really can't under HIPAA now, can they? Well, they could do it. Uh, um, my, my, they, I think they probably could if they have third-party standing. They would have to do it under a pseudonym also. But even putting that aside, my point is they can't prevail here by showing there is some hypothetical plaintiff out there who would be impaired. They have to show that the entire category of people whose rights they're representing are hindered. Why do, they have, why do they have to have third-party standing? Why can't they have standing on their own? Oh, they can have standing on their own, and they do have standing on their own to press their vagueness claim, for example. But they cannot assert their own standing to press someone else's rights. But the case law is pretty, pretty favorable for them on the standing of these third-party 
current and future patients. You can't deny that, can you? I can deny that. There's, you're right that there are many, many federal cases for decades permitting that. But we also have Dobbs recently acknowledging that the court had warped its third-party standing doctrine in service of abortion rights. Outside of the abortion context, you Dobbs would never didn't really definitively decide that issue. It used that, that example in context. It, it, no, it did not overrule its third-party standing doctrine, but it did say that its third-party standing doctrine had been warped. That was part of the court's analysis. And, more, and then if you look at the Kentucky Supreme Court, that's what I'm coming back to here, you'll see that there, too, the plaintiffs didn't show why this option to sue under a pseudonym was insufficient. Juveniles have been doing it for decades, and they've been doing it over parental opposition. Adult plaintiffs have been doing it for decades, notwithstanding the fact that they didn't need to in light of third-party standing. Justice Gorsuch's dissent in June Medical collects examples of that. And the most famous abortion case in all of American history, Roe v. Wade, was bought, brought by a individual plaintiff, not by her doctors asserting her rights for her. Beyond that, even if they could get over the hindrance prong, they have the close relationship problem. Again, they have the burden to prove that they have a close relationship with this entire category of individuals. But isn't the nature of a physician-patient relationship a close relationship? No. For it's one a caring relationship. They have, have physical contact with one another. How is that not... How does that not, not qualify? Well, let me take it in a few steps. The first problem is there's a conflict of interest in this case, which is that the plaintiffs are invoking the third party's rights to seek to enjoin a law that gives those very same third parties the right to sue the plaintiffs. So if there's a conflict of interest, it's hard to see a close relationship. But Beyond there, there's that, they... The, there's the Hippocratic Oath, though. And there, there's, I mean, the medical profession is a profession. It's not what you would portray it as, as just some kind of moneyed factory. Uh, th there is a Hippocratic Oath. They also, though, have to comply with the law. So if the, if the patients have the right to sue them for doing something that they do, uh, I would imagine they would not say they'll happily go along and do that. Indeed, part of their claim is that even when they think treatment is appropriate sometimes now, they're hesitant to administer that treatment. So obviously the law is having some kind of effect. But the conflict well, of interest yes, is... Un understandably, because if, if they're, they're concerned that they could be prosecuted or lose their medical license, and they would then be unable to not only earn a living, but to help the people that they care about. Right, and that establishes why there is a real conflict of interest here, because the law does have an effect on their behavior. But even if you put aside the conflict of interest, they simply didn't introduce evidence of a close relationship. You talk about the doctor-patient relationship, and I agree. When we think about the relationship we have with a family physician who we see for annual checkups, or a cancer patient who's meeting with an oncologist to discuss their treatment, um, you're of course going to have that close relationship where there's sustained communication. But what you see here is only evidence of transactional episodic interactions in which the patient meets with the plaintiff, the plaintiff provides the services, and they may never see each well, other again. Well, that combined with the fact that they don't even know exactly whose rights they're asserting now. Wasn't Dobbs a third party standing case? Yes, Dobbs did not overrule the third party standing doctrine in the federal system. It just acknowledged it was wrong and accepted it. But it used it in its, when it came Absolutely, to its, as a matter its. of precedent, when it was, they didn't grant cert on that question. But there's evidence in the record that the, the doctor who's one of the party plaintiffs does more, way more than what you're saying. Regular checkups, provides contraceptives. It, it's, it's a doctor-patient relationship. I think In they some situations, there may be one-off situations where there's an abortion, but it's not as you portray it. I don't think there's, I, if they want to point to affidavits that the, even the majority of uh, people they represent, let alone all of this entire category fits into that category, I'd be happy to hear it. I'm not aware of that. Uh, but there's no evidence of that. That plus the, close, the conflict of interest destroys the close relationship, and never mind that you have the hindrance. And you put all that together, and they have not carried their burden, and it is their burden, 
to show third party. But you standing. would concede that we really can't get to that issue until we deal with the with the issue of whether or not we have jurisdiction to hear the case, correct? I do agree with that, yes. Thank you. Uh, I see I'm a little over my time, but I will, unless there are further questions, reserve whatever time I do have for rebuttal. Thank you. Before we begin, I was wanting to introduce Judge Matthew Byrne from the 12th District Court of Appeal sitting on behalf of Justice Joseph Dieters. Thank you, Judge, for joining us today. On behalf of the Appellees, Ms. Hill, good morning. Good morning. Chief Justice Kennedy, and may it please the court, my name is Jesse Hill. I represent the plaintiffs' appellees. This is a critical moment for Ohioans' access to reproductive health care as the state seeks to impose its six-week abortion ban again. But the questions before this court today are not yet about that. They are about the scope of the Ohio court's jurisdiction. So while there are strong feelings on both sides of the abortion issue, plaintiffs today ask this court simply to adhere to long-standing, well-established rules regarding appealability and standing as the Ohio courts have applied them for decades. Now first- Ms. Hill, what about um, uh, Mr. Flowers' uh, statement that for every day the law is not in effect, the state is irreparably harmed? Well, Your Honor, I want to start first from the, the proposition that, unlike in the federal system, uh, the Ohio Constitution forbids appeal of um, non-final judgments. And so accordingly, the, law, the rule for a long time in Ohio has been that preliminary injunctions are not appealable. Um, the the, the 2505.02 creates a very narrow exception for orders that are basically tantamount to a final judgment in that all chance of getting effective or meaningful relief will disappear if there is not immediate review. Situations like Muncie, where the patient will be medicated, the controversy is over. There's no um, uh, reason to continue the litigation. The litigation is essentially moot. Here, that is just not the situation. The state can is seeking to enforce its law. It can enforce its law after final judgment if the law is upheld as constitutional. But he, he equates the enforcement of the law or, or the inability to enforce that law for every day. The state um, has the, the, the loss or the status harm by abortions that continue to take place outside of the scope of its law. Yes, Your Honor. And uh, it, he does make that analogy, and I think um, for the, the state can certainly always assert important interests, or virtually always, behind its laws, and then say for every day that its laws are not being enforced, that those interests are being irreparably harmed. So it's still a blanket. So you're saying it's a blanket statement of any law that the state would virtually enact. any law. That's right, Your Honor, and that would create an enormous exception to this general rule that the legislature did not write and that the Ohio Constitution does not permit, given its limitation on non-final judgments. So let's go back to the Ohio Constitution, because um, we're different from federal law because the jurisdiction of the appellate courts is as provided by law according to the state constitution, correct? That's right, Your Honor. So then we go to revised code 2505, and that gives us the exceptions for, or, or basically helps us understand what is a final appealable order, which does supply jurisdiction to a reviewing court. So within that context, um, can you analyze Mr. Flower's argument uh, about why, um, why or why not this question of um, 
holding in abeyance uh, a, a new state law, how is that addressed by 2505? That's right, Your Honor. If, if the legislature had wanted to write a rule that said that all uh, preliminary injunctions against state laws are appealable, it could have done that. It knew how to do that. It was surely aware of the federal rule. 2505.02 does not speak about uh, harm or irreparable harm. It asks whether the party will be deprived of a meaningful or effective remedy if it has to wait until final judgment. And again, those are situations where essentially the final judgment has already happened because there's no point to the lawsuit anymore, like forced medication, like disclosure of, of confidential information. That is simply not the case here. The state has interests. Of course it has interests. But it cannot just assert those interests, say every day they're going to be harmed, and that that's a basis for appealing the law. That is, that is, not, that is not what the text of 2505.02 tells this court to do. do. Do you agree, counsel, that it's your burden to show standing? Yes, Your Honor. It's the plaintiff's Okay. Burden. Well, let's, let's look at the third factor that uh, your uh, colleague on the other side talked about, hindrance. Yes. What's the hindrance with a woman of uh, baby-bearing age? standing up with her initials and saying, I got standing. Your Honor, first I want to clarify that the standard is not that it has to be an absolute hindrance or an insurmountable hindrance. It has to be some hindrance. Some yes. hindrance. So what's that hindrance? So the hindrance is that um, a, a, an individual who is seeking to end a pregnancy is seeking very time-sensitive health care. They have a matter of weeks in which to bring that lawsuit. Um, they may be dealing with other financial issues, other health care concerns. They are not in a position to hire an attorney, bring a lawsuit, seek an injunction, and then even if they were to bring it, they're not going to remain pregnant for very long, right? That, that woman is not going to be pregnant for very long for the duration of the lawsuit. So at some point, her interest is extinguished. The, the, the providers have a concrete, ongoing stake, personal stake in the litigation, and they are actually the better plaintiffs to bring this lawsuit. So if it's that broad of standing that you're proposing, why wouldn't then a grandparent or a putative father have standing to oppose the abortion. Well, Your Honor, I, I want to clarify, and, and the court, the Supreme Court has said it does not have to be an absolute hindrance. It's some hindrance. That's Singleton v. Wolf. That's Powers v. Ohio. But um, beyond that, it's this is this situation is actually the paradigm case for third-party standing because it's a situation where the woman is dependent on the provider. Well, I'm to saying if we rights. agree with you on third-party standing, what, what is the end game? What, what's the dimensions to it. Couldn't a grandparent of the putative child or a putative father of the child have that same standing to save that child's life? Uh, um, so, Your Honor, there has to be an interdependence of rights, and I think that is, that is the clarification that needs to happen here, that the close relationship is not about some familial relationship or close personal relationship. A familial relationship is not a close personal relationship? Well, that is not the standard. The standard, the definition of a close relationship really looks to whether the party's interests and rights are independent, or are, are interdependent. And so a, um, because the, the woman relies on the provider to exercise her rights, but the law only penalizes the provider, that's a situation where um, the court has said the rights are interdependent and therefore this meets the requirements for third party standing. That's not going to be the case in, in necessarily in those other scenarios. To reach that, would I have to ignore Article 1, Section 1 of the state constitution, which says that every citizen 
has an inalienable right to enjoy and defend life? Uh, Your Honor, I don't believe that provides a, a basis for third-party standing, per se. So no, it might. About, I'm saying for the putative grandparents or whatever. Um, I, I, the question of third-party standing is focused on the, the three factors. So that party would have to show injury to themselves and that they were facing some you know, injury like the criminal prosecution that the doctors are facing here. They would have to show a close relationship and that the third party was hindered from bringing their own lawsuit. That Wouldn't is a putative father have more of a close relationship than a doctor having one-time medical procedure? The Supreme Court has rejected standing in situations where... Um, this court has? No, the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, we're, we're talking about state law here. Yes, Your Honor, but the, the state standing law does follow federal doctrine, and this court has repeatedly cited federal doctrine as the standard for third-party standing in its cases, in all three of its third-party standing cases, and that is a situation where there is not an independence of interest in the way that there is um, between the physician and the, the patient, and that, um, the, that makes the physician really the better party to litigate this case, rather than putting the lawsuit in the hands of a patient who, or a person who is, is not going to be pregnant very long and is not going to retain a, a concrete personal stake. What a father or a father's rights organization might seek to intervene, but they wouldn't be in alignment on the same side as your clients. Uh, that's right. That's right, Justice Bruner. Uh, there would be an, an actual adversity, a real and actual adversity of interest in that case as well. They, again, they are not um, uh, connected in the same way. They would. They they might have standing to intervene, to have their if the if the court would admit them to the, would grant their motion. I mean, they they have their points of view to be heard. Correct. Um, so I, I'm not certain whether they would necessarily meet the requirements for intervention as opposed to third-party standing. But again, this is a, a question of third-party standing here. But but um, that would there are other procedural mechanisms indeed for parties to be heard if they wish to be heard in a lawsuit. Ms. Hill, I'll quick, quickly ask you so you can get back to your argument. Do you agree with Mr. Flowers that if we were to find um, that this is a final appealable order, should we decide the issue of standing or should it go back to the appellate court? Well, Your Honor, I think it should go back to the appellate court because the appellate court has not ruled on that question. And in addition, third-party standing is a prudential matter, not a jurisdictional one. So um, it, it would make sense to send it back. And is, your, and, is, and is your position that your clients have third-party standing and not standing in and of themselves? Well, Your Honor, it could be configured as traditional standing. We, they certainly have traditional standing to raise the other claims that are still unlitigated in the trial court. Um, the, they do have injury to themselves and causation and redressability. So in that sense, they do, but they are here with these claims seeking to raise the rights of their patients okay. and vindicate the rights of their patients. Thank you. Um, so, so are there any limits on uh, this rule? The rule as you see it, I mean, you, your, uh, your conception of uh, final orders seems to give trial court judges, a single trial court judge in one county, uh, extraordinary powers to uh, enjoin a law uh, and you know, the judge say, could say, could judge in Meigs County could say that the Ohio, uh, all of Ohio's housing discrimination laws are unconstitutional. Uh, schedule a trial that's going to last a couple years, and the state wouldn't be able to do anything to appeal. Is there any limits to that? 
Well, uh, first of all, there is there, uh, there's no allegation that, or, or a reasonable allegation that that's what was going on in this case. Um, the trial court intended to set a discovery schedule. It said so in its preliminary injunction order and proceed to final judgment. If there has been a long delay in this case, it is because the state has repeatedly appealed an order that is not permitted to appeal. Uh, this case has been pending. But, for I, a but year. I guess I'm asking generally about the about, about the rule here. I mean, if, if the state doesn't have the ability to immediately appeal um, in preliminary injunctions that, that enjoin state laws. You, you can imagine that uh, you'd be grant, you know, that trial court judges have extraordinary powers to enjoin state laws for uh, long periods of time. And well, yes, Justice It creates a lot of, you know, opportunities for forum shopping. Uh, well, two points, Justice DeWine. First, if the if the legislature is concerned about the unappealability about, of preliminary injunctions, it can change the rule and allow them to be appealed. But second, if there is a concern about delay and about that sort of thing happening, the state does have other options. It did not choose them in this case. It did not seek to expedite proceedings in the trial court or consolidate the preliminary injunction with the permanent injunction. It didn't seek a stay. It didn't take any steps except simply to keep appealing this law, which is why um, you know the, the law has been enjoined for fully a year, and we have not yet reached final judgment. We could have reached final judgment. At the time the now. preliminary injunction was granted, was there a discovery schedule with a, a date set? The court um, had set a, a date of um, in December for a conference to set a discovery schedule. The parties were in the process of negotiating that schedule, and then the state decided to appeal, at which point the court uh, canceled the the conference, and the state did not object to canceling that conference because of the pending appeal. Did obviously. the state below in the trial court ever ask for a preliminary injunction or a final in injunction? The state did not seek to, um, for example, co uh, consolidate proceedings between the preliminary injunction, the permanent injunction, or anything like that. No. The parties were negotiating over uh, the length of the discovery schedule. In the trial so court. going back to the constitutional jurisdiction of trial courts, courts of common pleas. I look at um, Article 4, Section uh, B, or, uh, Section B, and it says, the courts of common pleas and divisions thereof shall have original jurisdiction over all justiciable matters and such powers of review of proceedings of administrative officers and agencies as may, may be provided by law. Is there anything in state law that limits the decision of a trial court to have effect only in that county? Uh, no, Your Honor. And in fact, the, the plaintiffs uh, who are in this case are located all across the state. So certainly um, they, have to, they have to sue somewhere, and they are seeking relief for themselves and where they are located uh, in the state. Um, is that, did that answer your question, Your Thank Honor? Thank you. Is the state correct that if uh, the decision had gone the other way, that you would have been to, able to file an immediate appeal? I think it's possible, but, Your Honor, we're subject to the same standard in 2505. I mean, isn't there at least United States Supreme Court case law that says denial of a preliminary injunction that affects a fundamental right is immediately appealable? In federal court, absolutely. Uh, it would be a fact-specific determination whether that appeal met the standards of 2505. Point oh two is my understanding um, that we would have to meet the same standard that the state would have to meet in, in this, that does have to meet in this case. Ms. Hill, you noted that in Dobbs, the language regarding third-party standing was not part of the court's holding. What weight, if any, should we give to that language? 
Your Honor, it was very much um, a, a statement in passing. Um, the, as we cited in our brief, there are, um, I think, 21 state Supreme Court cases uh, decided both before and after Dobbs that, um, that indicate that uh, providers have third-party standing on behalf of their patients to bring these lawsuits. It is an almost universal holding of both state and federal courts. So in light of that, and in light of the fact that it was a a sentence, not even a sentence, of dicta in Dobbs, it, it, it should be entitled to very little weight from this court. Um, I see that I'm Counsel, out of time. Counsel, a little reminder. Are you aware of Section 17 of the Ohio Rules of Practice in front of the Supreme Court? Um, I, I may need a refresher. Okay. <laughs> you, you filed a supplemental authority. Yes. And says to list the authority, not make argument. And you made argument. Uh, Your Honor, that, uh, apologies if that's the case. That was not the intention. It was simply to um, list the authority and, and give its relevance. Just a reminder. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you very much, Your Honor. Um, I see I'm out of time, so um, if there are no further questions, we ask this court to affirm the First District's dismissal of the appeal and remand for further proceedings in the trial court. Thank you. Mr. Flowers, you've used your time, but we'll give you a minute. <clears throat> Thank you, Chief Justice Kennedy. I'll try to keep it to 59 seconds. Uh, Planned Parenthood, well, we, uh, below, did propose an 18-month schedule before we'd finally get to trial. The court didn't rule on it before we'd appeal, but to suggest that they would have gone along with anything expediting it is uh, wrong. Second, my friend is incorrect that standing isn't jurisdictional. In North Canton, this court affirmed uh, a 12B1 dismissal, which is a jurisdictional dismissal, on third-party standing grounds. With those two clarifications, three, uh, I guess, broader legal points. Justice Fisher, I've been kicking myself on Procedendo for not making uh, the obvious point, which is that Procedendo requires a showing that there's no adequate remedy at law. Because we think we have the right to appeal, we had an adequate remedy at law, so the writ would have destroyed our argument. Second, my friend said you should follow federal law in standing. This court is fond of stating correctly that the Ohio Constitution is a document of independent force. It can't keep saying that if it's going to incorporate a federal doctrine that stems from completely different constitutional text. Cases or controversies, which is what federal standing depends on, is not in our Constitution. Are, are limits on third-party standing prudential or constitutional? They're, in our view, they're constitutional. This court's never reached that. The Supreme Court has called it prudential in cases that don't really resemble the way they do third-party standing today. I'd refer you to Justice Thomas's dissent in June Medical for a discussion of that. If it's prudential, uh, the court is abandoning its prudential jurisdictional uh, rules, so it'd be surprising to see that they maintained it. One final point. My, if there's one point of agreement here uh, with, with the plaintiffs, it's that this, is not, this argument here is not about abortion. It's about much broader issues. You're seeing cases all around the state now being brought by municipalities telling trial courts and prevailing in front of trial courts saying that they will no longer follow this court's decisions upholding RC or revised code 9.68 under the Home Rule Amendment. If they're right, we have no basis for appealing those flagrantly unconstitutional decisions once the injunction issues. So what they're really seeking is a special rule for abortion, and that's exactly the kind of jurisprudence that destroyed irreparably the U.S. Supreme Court's reputation. We ask this court not to follow the same path. Thank you. you will take, we will take the matter under advisement, and you'll receive a decision from the court. Marshal, please. All rise. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. This open session of the Honorable Supreme Court of Ohio now stands adjourned.